You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast with Adam Collins and Daniel Norcross. We have Norky back to host the show as he did uh, so nicely on Storytime with Jeff last week. Uh, I, of course, uh, stood down for a few days last week for obvious reasons that we talked about then. I am more or less back on my feet now. I'm still a little bit ropey, as you know, Daniel, but um, I'm well enough to record a podcast with you here in Tooting, a place we've recorded the show a number of times over the journey. And and Jeff's now taking his week off, which he needs after a fairly taxing tour of Pakistan. Yeah, look, I mean, you've had a tough time of it and it was a genuine joy to be able to step in and help you out last week. But uh, you're looking exceptionally good for a man whose entire internal musculoskeletal system has taken a hell of a shake. Yeah, and, and it remains the case. As you and I noticed when walking in, I'm, I'm actually wearing the same jacket that I wore Ooh. that night. The only reason I'm wearing it was pretty much just because I knew you'd love it. It's this um, this beautiful bit of kit that the scorer gave me at Raul Pindi. It reads, on the breast, domestic cricket Pakistan. And I thought, oh, Daniel will love that. And I also thought maybe I should get back on the horse and put the clothing on that I was wearing that night and I thought that might be a helpful thing but I didn't realise until you pointed it out that it's got um, all yeah. the seatbelt marks all over it which is um, uh, yes a, yeah, a reminder it's amazing. of yeah. it's amazing you, you can see the slash of the seatbelt across your the, your top right side yeah but other I? than that, other than it, that is other, a, it is a beautiful bit of yeah, kit other than my torn pectoral which is uh, because <laughs> of that but anyway we can't complain I should give a brief update by the way that um, that Rayman uh, the driver who we spoke about at length last week is making a recovery 
our colleagues who are still in Pakistan with the One Day Series um, have had a chance to, to speak not only with the car company but the family as well in the hotel and they've been monitoring the situation and yeah the surgery was successful the recovery uh, continues in, in Lahore and everything crossed that he is able to make a full recovery that's what the prognosis is um, from what we're told so thanks to everybody who, who got in touch after listening to the podcast last week I know that the, there were some confronting bits in there for people who've been involved in road traffic accidents uh, and have been involved in traumatic incidents like that so um, yeah thanks for listening to what I had to say and, and I think Jeff handled that really well too in, in terms of hosting that episode and giving me the chance to to tell the story and um, yeah um, I, I'm fine other than the the, the knock-on effects to my ribs and back and, 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 and various muscles that are torn, but I'm going to be absolutely fine in a few weeks' time. And, yeah, looking forward to pretty much just getting on with the show. Yeah, and uh, and obviously we send our best wishes to Rayman because uh, he's the guy who's in our thoughts at the moment. Yeah. But it's, it is great to have you back, Colo, as we look forward to the start of spring with the county championship in England starting on Yes, well, well, I hadn't even considered this, but when we've had, when we've had you on in winters past mm. it's often involved reflecting on where the cricket season is or the England winter is relative to the second world war That's right. now I should have told you to plan this but just on off the top of my head if we're a few days away from the start of the championship yeah. season two days away actually not even nearly nearly uh, nearly uh, 48 hours exactly we're recording just after 11 a.m uh, on Tuesday morning UK time what are we are we at Yalta? Are we at- well, no, we're, we're, we're much further We're much further advanced than that. What I tended to do with the off-season is see it in very pure terms from the beginning of October to the end of March mm-hmm. because each month makes for one year. Oh, right, of course. So yes. what we're doing is we're preparing for the Nuremberg trials at the moment. Oh, OK. Right? We're, we're <laughs> we, we, five we, we, days we, we, off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of clearing up to do. Uh, I mentioned this to Jeff the other day. There's a lot of clearing up to do. There are a lot of prisoners of war to be dealt with. There's a lot of rubble in and around Berlin. Yes, yes. Um, but basically all of the English women who got pregnant at VE Day are now beginning to show the bumps. They're sort of five, right. months, they're five months in. We're around about November. The um, uh, the main Nazi war criminals have all been incarcerated. They're putting together their specious defences. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, <laughs> They're, they're preparing for... Preparing their cyanide for their pills in some do. cases. <laughs> and I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what else is happening right now. This is more of a story time anecdote, really, but, but I'll give it to you now anyway. Major Nigel Harvey Bennett, the uh, one-time captain of Surrey, he's just been demobbed because it's around about November of 1945. We, we're around that kind of stage now. And he's preparing to go to the Oval where he's going to collect, he thinks, his membership ticket for the year. Oh, yes, yes. Because he's been starved of cricket for six years. Right. Don't forget, he's a big cricket fan, played a lot at, at school. Uh, I think he may, he may even have like played in the first 11. I don't think he captained his side. And then, of course, he was whisked off to war, 1939 to 45. He hasn't seen any cricket since that, um, that series with West Indies, wasn't it? I think yep. in 1939. Yep. And he's desperate to get back to the Oval, his favourite ground. And he's about to go in and he's going to be greeted by the gateman because he's going to announce himself as Major Bennett. He's going to say, hi, it's Major Bennett here. The gateman is going to mistake him for a different Major Bennett, whisk him into the committee rooms and up to the captain's room and say, you've come a couple of months earlier than we were <laughs> expecting, but it's great to see you. <laughs> he is going to be completely bemused, but he's going to think, 
oh, well, I guess this is the dividend of being a war hero. <laughs> they make you captain, and then he's going to captain Sarri for a year. And as Wisden said, what is it? He, he had uh, the, 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 the terrible burden of his ignorance or something. <laughs> Didn't he average eight or something through the season? Uh, in fairness, it was near 14, I think. Okay. Because he, cause he, I think he got a 60 against Leicestershire or something like that, 60 not out or something, which, which bumped the average up. But he started the batting around about number four and he ended it down about number 10. And uh, the anecdote is that Bedser and Surridge and Laker were basically setting the fields for him by the end of it. And he wasn't officially fired. He was just thanked for his service at the end of the year and went on his way. Meanwhile, the other Major Bennett went off to Captain Northamptonshire. Oh, this is this is purely coincidental, but when we record story time later today, big reveal, we're recording both podcasts Woo-hoo. at the same time this week. I'm going to tell you another story about an amateur captain at the end of the Second oh. World War. Bated breath, Daniel. I am excited. And it's someone to rival. And, and it is a it's a proper yarn. Oh. So if you are a regular story time listener, uh, you'll be familiar with the flow of how we can get deep in the weeds on these matters, <laughs> especially with our dustier old bastards. But I've got one of the greats uh, coming up oh, for you when it is released on Friday or Saturday, but it'll be recorded later today. Since we last uh, hit record on a weekly show, there there has been more cricket in Pakistan. That was the Australia-Pakistan One Day Internationals. I declared to Jeff last week that I wouldn't watch a ball. That's not strictly true. I did catch a number of balls on the sofa last week uh, when I wasn't able to do an awful lot, but not enough to talk with any authority on what happened, other than the fact that Ben McDermott made 100. That's a good thing. Mm. He, he's got this extraordinary uh, conversion problem at first-class level. I think he's got two first-class hundreds and, I don't know, 25 half-centuries or something like he's that. Like Stephen Fleming, is he? Stephen uh, Fleming-esque, that's exactly yeah. right. But at white ball level, he's been prolific in the Big Bash last year, got his opportunity. If I recall correctly, he spent some extraordinary number of days in quarantine when Australia visited Bangladesh and the West Indies last year, which meant that he had to miss the birth of a child. But he saw that as his big opportunity to play for Australia with a number of the seniors your players choosing to go home after the test series he gets his chance and takes advantage of it and makes a, a maiden international century so well played to ben mcdermott and a couple then of things on him that, that, yeah. did he i think he said that muhammad rizwan was it came up to him afterwards. oh yes this really is, lovely this story is, no this is this is great stuff okay so i love that you've picked it up that way that i forgot to put this in our notes but there's been a big thing on pakistani twitter and bless them they are some of the best cricket fans in the world. I've loved corresponding with them uh, since you know, um, going over there and, and returning, where they've, they've started making fake accounts for Australian cricketers when they've done well. So there was an absolute rip snorter for Cameron Green doing the rounds for a couple of weeks. But all of the Australian players have ended up with these gigantic followings on what are effectively fake accounts. I'm not sure what commercial incentive there is to, to start these up. But yes, Ben McDermott had a fake account made up where had alleged that Rizwan had said to him something uh-huh. like this will be the first of many or some version of events and it's this beautiful fake anecdote. So Ben McDermott onto his real Twitter account which has like 12 followers and he's never used it said I don't use this platform but just a quick note to say ignore the fake account or something like that. Muhammad Rizwan didn't say that to me when right. posting three figures but I like how you've been yeah. dupes like many others have in the last month or so. Yeah it, was, it just sort of floated by my timeline and I thought this is because it was sort of of a piece with what's happened since Australia went to Pakistan which is that it has been one of the most sort of goodwill friendly sort of lovable tours, hasn't it? I mean, despite the fact that, you know, everyone was getting very vexed about the state of the pitches and what have you. Well, I mean, you know, certain people were. 
But aside from the on-pitch stuff, the kind of off-pitch stuff has had this wonderful feel of you know, massive bonhomie and happiness and uh, everybody, you know, it's like the friendly series and everybody's sort of shake each other's hands. And you could not be more spot on. I mean, up. there's been a lot of love between the teams. I think that partially is owing to the, the broader environment that the series was played in, first series there for so long, a real effort from the Australian team to be good global citizens at the moment under the captaincy of Pat Cummins. And it just happens to be they're all pretty good mates from having played mm-hmm. loads of international and domestic cricket against or with each other in the franchises. Do you think that'll persist, you know, in England going over there for seven T20s, aren't yep. they, in uh, September, October, and then three test matches? Yeah, I, I think... Or do you think the kind of the novelty will have worn off or do you think it'll be um, sort of a, a big charm offensive? I think the novelty well? will wear off eventually, but there's still that energy of just wanting to make sure that they're the best possible host they can be. And Rizwan's in the middle of all of that. So a number of times he was hanging out with the Aussies at one point, we heard him speaking Urdu with Usman Khawaja walking off the our wonderful vantage point at Karachi at the National Stadium there. We were on top of the players' race, so we could watch them and all, pretty much hear them uh, chatting to each other and, and uh, Barat Sundarais and picked up on that conversation with Rizwan. But he's, a, he's one of those kind of guys. He wants to be friends with everyone. Of course, Warner being Warner, he's in amongst it with all the Pakistan players too. So, yeah, that's a bit of an extension of all of that. But the, the one-day series has been and gone. Pakistan won 2-1 on account of Barbara Azam making a couple of centuries uh, and other um, very good Pakistan cricketers playing very well. I'm led to believe, honestly, I've not even looked at the scorecard of, of, of the last couple. But I know it happened uh, and I know that <laughs> Australia returned defeated from that. I know we have buried the lead here in the introduction. Normally, I would run through what we're going to talk about. Of course, we're about to invest a lot of time discussing the main uh, game of the week that was the Women's World Cup final at Christchurch. We're on the way there, I promise you. And then later, uh, we have an interview with Essex's Matt Critchley. Now, you might Doesn't wonder why... Weird? Essex is it did. Actually. It might sound yeah. a bit odd that we're uh, going to be having a conversation with a county cricketer that if you're in Australia, you probably haven't heard of before. You might be familiar from when he picked up Steve Smith's wicket in a tour game uh, in 2019 at, at Derbyshire, if you're a real badger. But we've decided to adopt Matt Critchley on the mm. final word for season 2022 for good reason. And we'll be chatting to him later in the show. And we're also going to swing via Durban uh, for uh, the test match that was played there. A rather dramatic finish but between South Africa and Bangladesh after what looked like um, it was going to be a great day five and wasn't. Uh, so just noting there are other things we're going to talk about beyond Pakistan. One of those, I should say, I'm out of order, but bear with me. Uh, while we're on one day men's cricket, South Africa lost the series to Bangladesh 2-1. That's a bit of a thing because South Africa are in all sorts when it comes to the one day World Cup Super League. Eight teams qualify automatically. They're in about 12th spot of 13 teams. They've won, I think, four of their 13 one-day internationals so far. They're going to have to get busy or a giant of you know the global game in South Africa are going to have to play a qualification tournament to make the World Cup in India next year. Mm-hmm. That's part of the joy, I suppose, of having context around. That's, well, that's the idea, That's isn't what it? the whole thing's there for. But losing yeah. to Bangladesh at home is significant. They need to get on a roll and very soon. They do. Uh, and it's not just them, the West Indies as well. Yep. Because they've, they've had issues with Ireland in, uh, in the West Indies. So True. It's, it's, South Africa played three games in England. I'm not, at the moment, 100% certain if they're counting towards that. ODI See, they, they, they should have had their games dealt with when yeah. they, it, when during England, the pandemic when England went off home after that barbecue. Yeah. But, yeah, will they count? That's a good question. If I was a better journalist, I know I would have done the research on that. But if they do that. count, I mean, that is a, that's a serious uh, mission for South Africa. Because yeah. while England's test team is in the terrible doldrums, 
you kind of sense I mean I don't mean this entirely but you get a kind of sense that Owen Morgan rather enjoys strutting his stuff with his England white ball team because you know they're a very very good side so the contrast between one side of English cricket and the other side of English cricket is enormous and there's every chance England will have just lost a test series against New Zealand yep a whole bunch of other players will start turning up like you know Joss Butler, Moeen Ali, Adil Rashid, these kind of titans of the current white ball game. And if South Africa were to lose those three games, and that they probably would be favourites to lose those three games, then they are in serious trouble at the bottom of the table. There. And they also play India away from home. Oh, that, that is not a task you want in no, the away. it's not. And Ireland, by contrast, are, are sitting in sixth spot and they've got Bangladesh for three games at home and I think maybe Zimbabwe as well. So they have a decent run to the finish line. I tell you, the qualification for that, the, um, the, the sort of, you know, the, the, the pre-tournament tournament, could be really hairy. Oh, yeah. Remembering that, like, as I say, eight make it through. And at the moment, the team's outside of the eight. And this will change because different countries have played uh, different numbers of games due to the pandemic. But Pakistan, West Indies, South Africa, Zimbabwe and Netherlands. And that Netherlands-England series uh, will be fun in June. I know a number of members of our Discord channel and uh, Final Word friends on Patreon have already booked their tickets. I'm going to go. I've You are, are you? Going. There's, yes. well, there's, there's been a lot of lobbying, certainly in the TMS team. Oh, I bet. For kind of, you know, can we say, because it, it happens really irritatingly from a from a. Oh, I don't think it's irritating at all. The third one day is the day before the test match at Leeds. Yes. You can got, do it. You can you can just about fit it in. It's between the second and third test matches yeah. that England play against New Zealand. And There's time the, if you're good enough. I've worked you, this you've, out. You've got to get from Amsterdam to Leeds on Wednesday night. Are you going to do, you're gonna do I, that? I'm going to yeah. do that, yeah. You're going to fly to... I'm going to make it work. I, yeah. I figure there'll be a flight to Manchester from Amsterdam. Oh, yeah, and then the, then the train across. And then the train across. arrive late. It'll be fine. Yeah. I've done this before. As you know, I've once watched Australia play on the same day in two different continents, so I can make this work. <laughs> um, so that, that's all ahead of us in one-day cricket. Let's move off men's one-day cricket, though. As I said, the, the main story in town this week and one that was uh, watched by both of us closely was the Women's World Cup final at the glorious Hagley Oval in Christchurch, where Australia did as they were always destined to do really and and won comfortably uh, the World Cup secured for the seventh time I think they came into the final having won 38 of their previous 39 or 40 or whatever it was since the previous World Cup in 2017 that was a real turning point that day at Derbyshire um, to think where they were at that sort of previous World Cup to now to think where Elisa Healy was mm. now I went and crunched the numbers on this her first 52 one-day internationals that take us up to that semi-final in 2017, when they lose to India and lose to Harman Preet Kaur, she'd averaged 16 with the bat and made two half centuries in a massive sample size of 52 games. Mm. I acknowledge she was shuffled around the order. She was a more junior player in the team then. A bit Danny Wyattish, actually. A very Danny Wyattish. That's a great comparison. Since then, her next 42 one day internationals, she's made five centuries, including both in the semi final and the final. 13 other scores above 50, averaging 52, almost all of those at the top of the list when they made that structural shift. And uh, so it was player of the final uh, in the World Cup, made 170, the highest score ever by a player in a World Cup final. Did the job to annihilate the Windies in the semi as well. Uh, finished with in excess of 500 runs for the competition. What an extraordinary individual performance by a player who is every bit as important as Big Lanning to their prospects these days. Yeah, I mean, the, the fact that she, everyone concentrates on the fact she's likable, and she is likable, but. 
I'm not interested in how likable she is, to be brutally honest with you. At the top of the order, she's game-changing. When I saw Shafali Verma last summer, I thought, wow, this this is a different kind of cricketer. Yep. But actually, you know, the problem that Shafali Verma has is that she's got all the raw talent and she times the ball magnificently, but she's not a professional in the same way that Alyssa Healy no. is. And what you see in Alyssa Healy's batting is somebody in complete control and mastery of the craft of building an innings and then kicking on. It's wonderful that, you know, she doesn't go, she's not a slouch in the first 10 overs, but she gives herself the chance to go absolutely berserk. A little bit like how um, Kevin Peterson used to in test cricket. Remember he got a double hundred against the West Indies and the first hundred took about 180 balls and the second hundred took about 50. And she bats with that assuredness. Now, she was given a little bit of, she was given a life or two, England's fielding throughout the tournament was was suboptimal. In fact, most countries' fielding was suboptimal, apart from Australia. And this was sort of key to me. Australia, they batted in that top seven like no other country did. So if they did lose a couple of weeks, occasionally Healy was out cheaply. But Rachel Haynes was staggeringly good. Beth Mooney at the start just couldn't get out. She just came in and, well, and scored yeah, the run. Yeah, you can kind of go through it, can't you? I mean, Lanning wasn't even the you know the major wicket. It felt yeah, like, apart from that know. one masterful hundred yeah. that Lanning made, she wasn't the most important player. It is that depth. Yeah. The fact that Elise Perry can be picked mm. and bat at seven in the final with a back injury that precluded her from bowling, it's depth upon depth. I mean, even like let's pick Talia McGrath, an unbeaten eight from four balls or something at the yeah. end, picks up a wicket. Barely needed, yet she was the most important player through the Women's Ashes series for Australia in the 50-over format a couple of months ago. Match winner after match winner. Rachel Haynes made the second most runs in the comp at 490-something. A massive first-wicket partnership in the final. So consistent the whole way through. Rachel Haynes wasn't even in the team, barely, uh, in the previous edition of the World Cup. I know she stepped into captain when Lanning was out of the side, but I mean, the, the, the point I'm illustrating there is that someone like Rachel Haynes, who was almost from the previous generation, years in the wilderness, came back via the WBBL, and that's a massive part of this story. It might be repetitive, but it's worth saying over and over again, investment in domestic women's cricket has underpinned this period of unparalleled success. Jared Kimber wrote a great piece on his substack about this saying that where other countries have missed a trick, it's been not realising a few years ago that Australia and England becoming fully professional with national contracts, that was only one side of the equation. They needed the other side to come through in India and it hasn't as far as the women's IPL or the West Indies who won the T20 World Cup in 2016. They've, they've not really got mm. what you would call a, a world-class women's domestic competition as yet, although they're hopefully on that trajectory. New Zealand certainly don't have anything that competes with the WBBL or, or the Kia Super League, now the 100. So I think if you want to catch up to Australia, that's the obvious next step. You, yeah, It's not just about salaries for... It's not just about, you know, what Jess Jonathan's pulling in a year as a national contracted player. It's what her teammates for Queensland and for the Brisbane Heat are making as professionals down the chain, which are, which are, is building the resilience across the board. Well, this is what you see, because what you see with Australia, and there was a sort of a hint that if you got after Australia, if you got close to them, then you, their vulnerabilities would come. And England got quite close to Australia in a couple of matches, actually, during the Ashes. In the very first one, the first T20, they, they put on probably more than Australia were expecting, got a couple of early wickets but that depth now the depth comes from all of those players being professional and playing in a high profile tournament whereas if you look at the West Indies basically their big four 
they play in the WBBL. Beyond that, you take you take three or four West Indian wickets, and you can't see how they're gonna how they're gonna cope. Whereas with Australia this time, on the rare occasions when they did lose a couple of wickets, they got you know Ash Gardner came in hit what was it forty eight or eighteen or something utterly ridiculous. I commentated that game. It was incredible. There was only one player in that lineup that you would say can't really bat Darcy Brown. Jess Jonathan's down at ten. I mean. Five years ago, yes. Jess Jonathan's a six and seven. Absolutely. But there's no way she's a six and seven in that side. So you can't actually take enough wickets unless you take nine to, to really put massive pressure on the Australian batting lineup. And that's a big, big problem for, for all the other countries. But, and, and take Alana King. And this, again, I'm yeah. going back to Kimber's words here. It's a system of Alana King's. So Alana King was not thought to be part of the planning for this World Cup externally anyway we, we weren't sort of having a conversation with her on on the podcast about how she might be uh, Australia's secret weapon as a wrist spinner in this tournament a year ago but the fact that she was able to be thrown into that environment unexpectedly ahead of Amanda Wellington in the women's ashes that and with that brief ramp up be she wasn't the reason why Australia won the World Cup but gee her three wickets in the final certainly helped bowling Dunkley around our legs was, yeah. a, was, so a, that was a piece really, of magic. Actually, it was a really big wicket, that, because, again, yeah. whilst the margin of victory looked huge, Nat Siver was playing one of the all-time great innings. Yeah. And, it's, and it's gone massively under the radar, 148 not out at the end. And you saw when she had support from Charlie Dean, it was just too late, that ninth wicket partnership, they were actually keeping England in it. You know, England's failures there were partly of their own making, but they were partly because of Alana King. I mean... <laughs> genuine turn the the wicket of Brunt was absolutely key because you've got Siver at the other end Brunt takes two steps down the wicket and the ball turns sharply past her outside edge I mean it was it was actually beautiful cricket to watch as well and I was looking at the bench strength of Australia and thinking you know Grace Harris Sutherland Wellington I mean they are walking into every side in the world and they're not getting in this. Yeah, team. I mean, even look at Jonathan. Takes three wickets in the final. She's been the number one ranked bowler in the world for the majority of the last five years. You know, she missed games in this campaign. Oh, yeah. Uh, Darcy Brown was rested every other game. Darcy Brown started. was carefully controlled yeah. the whole way through. And, and we'll come to England in a minute, and I'll, I'll draw a comparison to Darcy Brown um, with where I see England going uh, in the short term. But there's this sense that how do they get caught? I mean, you know, Beth Mooney, 66. 66 from 47 I think it was in the final at number three that flexibility to elevate her they've got that I mean the mm. fact that Lanning didn't need to make runs in the final Gardner didn't make runs she was player of the World Cup final in 2018 in the, in the T20 format McGrath. there in the Caribbean we already touched yeah. on McGrath I mean we could probably go on all day about this but and then with the ball Megan Shoot, who didn't play during parts of the Australian summer after they had their first baby, which was great to have, again, that sort of flexibility in the Australian contract system, which enables her to go off and, and be on leave as it would be for any cricketer. But it's good that she felt stable enough it. and it's, it's doing the right, you know, it's doing what she seems to, feels to be the right thing by her family and it doesn't have to be at the expense of her career. Uh, she comes back and takes two early wickets and England are pretty much not cooks from there, but the probability of coming back. And I love the fact that it included one of those massive hooping in swingers oh. that we've seen from shoot over the journey. Daniel, we've watched her bowl so often and commentated so much of her international career, but you know, the ball to Wyatt, the ball to Beaumont. I mean, that, that's the stuff you dream of. If you are Megan shoot, she did it a number of times through the tournament. She starts it so wide as well. I mean, it's one of the great things. It starts quite wide and then it, it does come in late. It's not straight out of the hand. It's, yeah. You know, uh, it's similar to Shrubsole, but I think it has, I think the movement is that little bit later. And um, 
and she's she attacks the stumps, doesn't she? Yeah, you know, I mean, they've been two of the best who've ever done it. Yeah, and now they've got both got remarkable records. I mean, Shrubs Hole from five years ago, and maybe we'll use that as the the segue into the England team. I'll just note on the way through, by the way, that I feel desperately for New Zealand. They they won three games. They probably could have won five or six with a snifter of luck. But could have beaten England once. They, well, they should have beaten England. Yeah. And once again, uh, they they missed the semi finals. That's it for their golden generation. Gosh, we've talked them up over the journey. Not to be, won't be Bates and Divine and Satterthwaite. Do you think that? Do you think that's the end for all three of them? Look, whether it is or isn't, the probability of them being World Cup winners in three years' time. So if we jump forward to the next fifty over World Cup, they might go around again in, in the T Twenty format. But purely thinking of fifty over cricket, they've been the engine room for so long, and that'll no longer be the case. You, you use the West Indies as the example of a team that have had the ability to be on. The global all-star circuit, the same applies for South Africa. They've had their golden generation who've all been very lucrative assets in the 100, the, the WBBL, and they've honed their game and they've been outstanding in the 100 last year. Danae Van Niekert, captain the team that won the whole they thing, great for example. In this World Cup, weren't they? They were, they were great until they finally fell apart in well, the semi-final. Well, here's my fear. You know, my fear is that you can probably draw a parallel to Ireland's men. The golden mm. generation come through and take them to a a pretty special place and what comes next well I'm not sure what comes next for the South African women I hope plenty because their seam bowling group is still outstanding despite being unpicked by Healy uh, in the semi-final they they bowled out teams on r- routinely through uh, through the group stage of the tournament and got through a couple of close games at the end too so it's not as though I'm, I'm foreshadowing South Africa falling off a cliff in, in the way that might be the case for New Zealand but they better get that domestic structure right they better not just rely on having their best talent getting to play in Australia and England and, and hopefully Pakistan and or India. We talked about that, that on the podcast last week about the, the next big women's T20 comp, wherever it is in Asia. That's not going to be enough. Well, it's, so, not, it's not going to be enough because you've simply got to crunch the numbers. You know, in, in England, you've got the 800 franchises. Now, they are looking for Aussie talent and they're looking for the best West Indian and South African talent. They're not looking yep. for all South Africans. You know, Laura Wolfhart, yeah. Danny Van Niekirk, yeah. Suna Luce, maybe. Mignon Dupria. Ayabonga uh, Kaka, Ishmael. But then once you get beyond that, there's not going to be 11 South Africans playing. There's just not space for it. No. There's just not space for it. Because so. there's space for 16 to 20 Australians for a kickoff, which is... Yeah, yeah, well, that's it. So, I mean, and this is good that we're having conversations like this at the back of the World Cup, by the way. Yeah, we celebrate um, the, the investment that Australia made. That MOU back in 2017 was instrumental to that. I think from memory, it doubled the average salary of a nationally contracted player. It provided a, a, a basic standard of living for every domestic player in Australia. Um, the W BBL that came before that revolutionary England getting the ball rolling with national contracts in 2014 brilliant England having 41 domestic contracted players last year which expands to 60 60 to 70 isn't it pretty much all of the teams are going to have almost all professional this year there'll be a a few outliers but um, they're on their way to the same as Australia there you little beauty it's It's on on the way The, the the pay differential is still alarming when you look at what the lowest paid man gets in the 100 and the yep. highest paid woman. But, you know, again, Claire Connor will say she's a gradualist. You, you've got yep. to take this step at a time. And this is, a, this is a step change from last year, which was a step change 
from the Kia Super League. Yeah, what's that expression? Winning, winning decades, and you know the, 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 they will win the decade. England in the mm. end, as far as and so will Australia and others that make this investment. But um, we're probably banging on a bit now. But it's the it's the right time to take stock, as it is for England as a national team. You know, Brunt walking out at number seven in a chase of three hundred and fifty-seven, which was their target, yeah. probably showed that. They were, they were hoping beyond hope that they could keep the Australians at bay with their bowling. And when it didn't happen, um, they're just a little bit light on with the bat there. And that's no reflection on Brunt, by the way, but more just... Yeah, they were flirting with having White at seven at different points through the summer, which worked quite well. Of course, there's been room for her at the top of the list in this tournament. A brilliant century in the semi-final to, to see off the South Africans. Her second for England in this format of the game. We've all been waiting for mm. Danny Wyatt to take the next step. She's done so as a T20 player. I thought she started making the step as a six or a seven uh, last year against uh, New Zealand and India, but to now do it again as an opener, it gives her another opportunity at age, let's call it 30 or 31. Brilliant to see. But I'm looking forward to seeing how they evolve now because their core has been Knight, Siva, Beaumont, Brunt, Shrubsole. I might be missing one or two there. And Eccleston. Eccleston, sorry. Eccleston, big one. Mm. Best bowler in the world. Maybe that core doesn't include Shrubsole and Brunt purely down to the facts that they need to think about where they're going to be in three years' time. And in the very same way that and I don't like using men's cricket always as the comparison point, but you can with this. The Australian men, when they were super successful, would look one World Cup cycle ahead and they'd do the math and they'd work out how old the players would be and what experience they would need to get into the players in the intervening years. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of doing that right now, like that series in Pakistan, for example, and what we saw last year abroad too. England need to look at three years' time how many one-day internationals do they want Izzy Wong to have played, for example, by then? And if there's not room for her to play now, then they can't expect her to, to make the step up. It doesn't happen automatically. That's going to be fascinating. Yeah, it's it's people like Izzy Wong, Lauren Bell. It's that yep, younger yep. generation of quicker bowlers that England desperately need. And, and actually, look, this isn't... I'm not going to go overly critical on England because they had a really, really tough three and a half, four months. You know, they were in the bubbles. They were playing against Australia. If you play Australia time and time and time again, then you're not going to get that muscle memory of winning. So it does make it pretty tricky, actually, having spent, having just done an ashes and then you turn up, you're not at your best. You're in quarantine again. Um, their entire dates kept on getting screwed around, yeah. if you recall. Ashes started earlier and then they went oh, to... We had, we had Heather on the show before the, uh, yeah. before the test and she was... I mean, in hindsight, we should have probably pumped that that podcast to a couple of news journos because she was clearly pissed off, yeah. and not unreasonably, well, uh, about the way they'd been stuffed around. No one's fault necessarily, but you're right. They were on a bit of a hiding to nothing when it came to their scheduling. They, they really were. But the other part of this is that, you know, I've been following women's cricket, I've been following women's cricket for 15 years or so, but I've been covering it properly for the BBC since 2014. And that women's test match... And the squad around that women's test match against India that I covered in Wormsley. Yep. There were too many people who were still there to me and had been for the last year or so. It was, uh, I, I felt that England were relying on their old guns just to give one last hurrah and to yeah. get them over the line. Now, I think that's going to have to change. And it's, I, I don't want to ever sort of be suggesting that someone's career is over. But the Brunt Shrubsell partnership at the, at the top with the ball. Is it feasible that that's happening in three years' time? Brunt will be 39 by then. 
the shops all want to keep going for another three years. I, I think that's doubtful. So the the quicker bowlers, they're going to need to make the changes with. And Shropshire, by the way, was in tears uh, before the game and after the game. And there'd been, you know, th- there was a, a fair bit of speculation that might be it for her. I, I hope it's not because I hope they don't simply go. Well, they come as a, a couple because there is a yeah, six year yeah. there yeah, is a like, six like year bro- gap. It's like the Anderson Broad thing, yeah, you know. It, I mean, exactly, it's a, it's a yeah. kind of crazy thing that happens more in journalists journalists' minds really than in than in the reality. They're two completely different people at different stages. But of she their has life. played international cricket since she was sixteen. Yeah, that's a lot of miles on the clock for any professional cricketer. Purely down to the fact that she was a, a very gifted teenage bowler, shrub soul, and got the chance to play quite young, which is often the case, which brings me to someone like Alice Capsey. One of my favourite players on the world scene at the moment, Alice Capsey. I've never seen a youngster with quite the game face on as her. I I was talking to a coach at Spencer Cricket Club just around the corner after I'd seen Madeline Blinkhorn Jones, (laughs) the the greatest Woodhouseian name in women's cricket. Score a very attractive 50 in, uh, in in the London clash between Surrey and Middlesex. And I went up to see the coaches and got talking about Capsie. And the coach said, I'll tell you, this girl is something else. She got 150 in a club game and she was out, caught at deep mid-wicket. And she was furious. She walked off throwing her back down. She had like a face like thunder. She has an insatiable appetite for runs. She's actually carded down as a bowler. They think of her as a bowler. Yeah. But... I mean, she burst onto the scene, that 60-odd, wasn't it, at Lords? Her first time at Lords, walking out at Lords, when she was, I think, 16, coming on 17. Completely amazing. And she's got, she's got a, f- a fabulous physique. She's got real power. It's very rare you see a 16-year-old is able to time the very slow bowling that you get in, in the tier below international cricket. If you watch women's domestic cricket in England, there are a lot of very slow bowlers. And there's a good reason for that because they're really tough to get away. Actually, pace on is quite helpful for uh, some of these girls who like played a lot of hockey and uh, can time a ball. If you get a really slow bowler, being able to thread balls through the infield or just go over the top with an economy of movement and effort is really hard to do without losing your shape. She does that. She's got a, a natural ability to hit a ball. She was at the Cricket Writers Club dinner in England last year yes, at the Oval. which you emceed so well. Oh, thank you very much. She was the Young Woman Cricketer of the Year? She or? was the, I should know, I voted on this. Uh, yeah. Yes, it was the inaugural winner of the Young Women's Cricketer of the Year. We've got two awards now. And that is, it's that kind of thing that is really important for, for English women's cricket is that you have an, a young England woman, not just the Women's Cricketer of the Year, not just, and it was great that Wisden started doing it, but making a woman one of the five cricketers of the year, but actually to see that, you know, you're starting to reward people who are 16, people who are coming through in just the same way as the Young Cricketer of the Year has been a feature of the Cricket Writers Club. They've sponsored the Young Cricketer of the Year yep. for 60-odd years, haven't they? And people like Peter May have won it. Yes. Heaven knows who else. But now it's part of the structure. And that's where the, the 100 really comes in because England are able to have seven times eight players playing every time. They've got 56 players playing on the BBC, playing on live TV in front of much larger audiences. You know, Alice Capsey had more eyeballs watching her when she was 16-year-old than Alistair Cook ever had in his entire test well, career. Well, this is it. You talk about, you know, 16 going on 17, and you think of someone like Sarah Taylor, another who would have played the majority of her career until the very end, not under the same type of scrutiny that you're referring to there. The only reason I, I cite Sarah Taylor is that 
she's she's emblematic of investing in a young player, precociously talented young player, who's able to become a part of the core for a long time. And that's what I think that's the that's the next trick for England. It's how do they draw down on the resources they've got here through the semi pro system, the Charlotte Edwards Cup for T twenty, the Rachel Hayho Flint trophy, it'll be into its third year, third season this year in twenty twenty two. How do they mine that resource for the group who are going to be there in three years' time. Uh, Maya Bouchier uh, made a quite mm. impressive start to her short form career. We haven't Sarah even touched Glenn, on Charlie Green know. yet. Charlie Dean, who's probably leapfrogged Sarah Glenn. I know they, mm. they perform different disciplines, but you know, th- again, th- Charlie Dean, who batted ten in the final, where is she going to get the opportunities to, to take her um, game to the next level? And I think she'll probably become a very good number eight, occasional number seven. That's great. I think Maya Bouchier is going to be a serious cricketer. So where does she get the chances to get games under her belt now? And unfortunately, the only way to facilitate that is to make tough decisions about players who've been there for a long stretch of time. What you're referring to effectively is the Wormsley 2014 crew, who some of whom are still there. Lauren Winfield, for example. Well, yeah, and, 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 and I know anyone who's listening now will probably done the math on what you've done as well. They're probably thinking, well, you're talking about Lauren Winfield-Hill. To an extent, I am. And, you know, she's been given chance after chance, and that's just the way it goes sometimes. And if Lauren Winfield-Hill goes back to domestic cricket and makes a shed load of runs, as she did last year, by the mm-hmm. way, to start the Rachel Hayho Flint, she should still be in the hat. But that can't be plan A for... World Cup 2025. World Cup 2025 needs to be about how they prepare with Generation Next, not the group who won the Cup in 2017. And I'm sure they'll be mindful of that and coming full circle about someone like Darcy Brown. The women's game is evolving with pace. And I know this pisses some people off. I, I sense it. I detect it on Twitter. When we talk about women and pace... There are some people who, who, who get frustrated at why do you focus so much on women and pace and, and it's a different form of the game in, in the sense that you don't have to apply everything like for like with men's cricket. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just simply noting that someone like Darcy Brown, who is 19, 18, 19, 18, yep. 19 is already making an impact. Why is that? She's 10 kilometres quicker than most of her contemporaries. She's been built that way. Taylor Valamix and other. Look, pace works more in women's cricket than it used to because they're pacier. I mean, yeah. Shabnam Ishmael had yes. a pretty great World Cup. She's she's quick. You know, Darcy Brown had a great World Cup. She's quick. Yeah. Izzy Wong will be quick. Now, this doesn't mean to say that you're not going to have spinners. I mean, I, I still think in women's cricket, you're going to be looking at, you want you want two paces. You're going to want an all-rounder, someone like Siva, McGrath, and you're going to want three spin options. You know, one turning away, one turning in. You yep. st- the, the role of the spinner, look, Sophie Eccleston, as you said, number one bowler in the world, but she was taken down to the tune of 70 runs by the Australians. And actually, Shropsol went for, what was it, 46, I think. So, you know, it's not as simple as just saying sp- it's spin to win. In it's the not, yeah, it's game. not spin to win anymore. And a player like Kate Cross shows that too with mm. the experience she brings. And another player who had to go back and do it the hard way via domestic cricket. And yeah, we're, you know, friends with Kate, had her on the show and all the rest of it. But I hope that. The way they do this is carefully, respectfully, but also with a view to what comes next. And they'll have a T20 World Cup between times. And look, are England realistically going to win the T20 World Cup next time around? Probably not. You know, you, you would think that Australia is so yeah. far ahead. Not to but say... You, but you reduce... You, you, but you, you might reduce the margin. You closer together, don't yeah, you? Yeah, that's right. And there's not as much difference between 20 over teams and 50 over teams in women's cricket as there is in men's yeah. cricket. So maybe it's the case that that's a building block and for the, the next 50 over World the Cup. The women's 100 would have taken place. England have got three more women's 100s before yes. the next 50 over World Cup. 
Uh, they got another women's 100 before the T20 World Cup. And this isn't all because, you know, this isn't about nationalism. This isn't wanting England to win because it's England. It's because brilliant as Australia have been, and they have been brilliant, and they've been awesome to watch, actually. But it would be great to see them taken really close. You know, it, what would be what would be wonderful was if we could have a Women's World Cup final like we did in 2017. Yep. There was a bit like the Men's World Cup final in 2019. And Absolutely. at the moment, the problem is that I think uh, Chris Addison said it to me yesterday, the, the comedian. He said yep. the World Cup was basically a day out for Australia and then there was the best of the rest. And England well, won the best of the rest and Australia did what we all basically knew they were going to do. And the multi-speed economy thing is clearly there and it's great that Australia have set the standard and it's great that we can talk about England having the ability to bridge that gap. And it's wonderful that we had so many close games in the group stage and that for much of the group stage, it was six trying to fit into four. That didn't quite feel the same in 2017. It mm. felt fairly early on who we knew which four teams would be at the business end. It's also about making sure that teams seven, eight, nine and beyond get their leg up as well. And with Pakistan, it'll be hopefully via the women's PSL. Just on that, a quick word on Bangladesh. Really, really impressed with their bowling. Yes. Great bowlers. They've got that problem that a lot of developing women's nations have. They haven't got the batters to really to hit the ball off the square. They haven't got enough of them. They've got one or two. But, you know, we saw some... Mag- it was Bangladesh that had Australia momentarily on the road. Four for 60-odd, yeah. uh, chasing 190 or... Yeah, that, there, there was you a know, moment they, they, there. I think they'd only lost three wickets in, the, in each of their previous two games, yeah. three games. Yep. And then Bangladesh came along and bamboozled them. There's there's some interesting players there. Let's move on to the men's domestic game in Australia because the Sheffield Shield wrapped up uh, in April uh, for the second time uh, in a row. The second year in a row, the Sheffield Shield was still being played in April, which is unusual, but such are the scheduling challenges around COVID and all the rest of it. Last year was the first time, Daniel, and of course, Andrew Sampson supplied us with this stat. In fact, I think we were having lunch at the time uh, when he sent it through to me that it was the first ever day where the county championship and the Sheffield Shield were being played at the same time. Anyway, that wasn't the case quite this year, but nearly, nearly. Indeed, this will be the final episode of season 11 and we'll start season 12 of the final word next week because that's how we like to do it. We use the the domestic seasons. Domestic seasons, we do. Western Australia win the comp for the 18th time, the Sheffield Shield, that is, but their first win in 23 years. Uh, They went back-to-back in 97, 98, 98, 99. But when you consider how many fabulous cricketers have come out of WA since then, it's kind of remarkable that it's taken them this long to... Hold up the trophy. That's especially the case for Sean Marsh, a career that's pretty much spanned that entire weight. He made his debut. I remember it uh, back in 2001 at the MCG, early 01 at the MCG against Victoria as a teenager. Well, he's 38 years old now. He's the captain and he's held up the Sheffield Shield. It may very well be uh, his final game of Shield cricket, I suppose, if he wants to go out on top. I'll never, I won't believe Sean Marsh has retired until, <laughs> until he's actually like Cricket Australia chief executive. Yeah, it'll, it'll, yeah he and Shahid Afridi will still be getting around together. Uh, and it was nice that it was at the Wacker as well, a ground that, that was so important for him throughout his long uh, journey. So it means that WA uh, complete the treble, the one-day cup, the big bash and the shield for the men. The women also won the WBBL for the first time earlier in the season. So an incredible season for WA cricket, especially when you consider that much of it was played for them away from home. I mean, they went months of a time not seeing their friends and family or being bubbled with friends and family in order to play the big bash. They had the Fitzshield cricket around that. I mean, 
you know, it's fair it's, play. It's I can't work out whether it's a coincidence or a blueprint, um, yes. <laughs> because you know, Western Australia had a very different COVID experience, didn't they, from yeah. um, the rest of Australia, really. And within Western Australia, people are sort of partying and having fun and everything's okay because they haven't got any COVID at all, whereas Melbourne's got the longest shutdown in the world. And somehow Western Australia's cricketers have all done really well out of this. Either being bubbled away, maybe they were so sick of the sight of their family and of Western <laughs> Australia that getting away from there gave them the inspiration. I don't know, or maybe it's just a golden a golden time for their players. Yeah, well, I mean, they, they lost the test match, the Ashes test match, and as you say, they were locked down uh, in WA. And by locked down, I mean not locked down. Locked in, out, really. Locked out, yeah, yeah. For, for such a long time. I mean, we've all got friends and colleagues who, who are from WA who've had to make heart-wrenching decisions about their family and personal lives against their professional lives, which is been impossible for them but but so it's been through COVID for a lot of people including the cricketers so a wonderful effort uh, under uh, the stewardship of Adam Voges great man I'm so pleased to see him have that success as coach the Victorians were you know kind of going for it at one point the, the way the game flowed was that WA made 386 across 121 overs um, to start the match uh, of course being top of the table they could play for a draw and still win as is the custom in the Shield final Cameron Bancroft got 141 of those a good story for him I suppose we, we don't really think about Bancroft in national calculations at the moment for whatever reason but he's ended the season on a high note. Uh, Sam Whiteman his opening partner made 85 and they put on 188 for the first wicket. So they laid a foundation against Scott Boland too, who just came straight back from being a glorified net bowler in Pakistan and straight back on the park in the Shield final. At least he had um, the overs under his belt from uh, the endless training that we saw the poor bastard doing on the, <laughs> uh, in the heat of Pakistan. Lunchtime after lunchtime, net after net, but uh, wasn't able to get a start over there. But no, he was leading the attack for Victoria. Uh, and then uh, young Will Sutherland. Uh, you mentioned Annabelle Sutherland a moment ago, but... Uh, her brother got the Vicks back into it. He took five for 78 from 30 overs, a very promising tall all-rounder. I'm not sure if you've seen much of Will as yet, I'm, son well, of James. I've, I've seen bits of him, but it's it's slightly alarming, this this uh, new trend in Australian cricket from an English point of view, suddenly to have tall, good, fast bowling all-rounders because that's not something that Australian cricket has tended to produce. The Cameron yes. Green, Sutherland, I mean... Well, I'm going to tell you about a couple more in this game as we Uh-oh. go through as well. <laughs> You're right, I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but... I mean, Green head and shoulders, right? Green's going to be just an absolute freak. I mean, yeah, hasn't quite clicked yet, but... He's very young. He's I mean, obviously going to rem- click. Reminds me of, of a slightly better, younger Andrew Flintoff, yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah. I think he'll open the... I think I said to Jeff, I think it's entirely possible he'll end up opening the bowling for Australia quite a bit to, to balance the team off. As and when they need him to, he's that good with the ball and then he's got, I don't know, a dozen first-class tons already. But yeah, Sutherland would, would might be next in the queue on, on, on that front if they did have a vacancy as a, an all-rounder down the track a little bit. It reminded me a little bit as well of what Peter Siddle did back in 2007-08 in a, in a losing effort at the SCG when New South Wales won the Shield thanks to an incredible 100 by Phil Hughes and, and Siddle took five or six for not many from a lot of overs and that was the springboard into the, the test team for him and the start of his long international journey. Yeah, the Vicks in reply made 306 
Uh, they batted for 105 overs, so they, they had to occupy the crease for a long time. Pekofsky back into the team after his what proved to be non-concussion, which is a good thing. That that last reported concussion wasn't a concussion, so he got back a little bit quicker. So good for him to, to get in the runs with 59. Hanscom made 80, but no one really kicked on. Mitch Perry, the night watchman, made 74. Another tall, fast bowler, looks good. And he can come in as night watchman and make 74 in the Shield final. Watch this space uh, for young Mitch Perry. I think he's a decent prospect. Yeah, and they chased the bonus point. It's a bit complicated, but they didn't quite get there. And there was enough of a deficit that WA were able to effectively bat out the match. And, and so they did. They did have a wobble at one stage. They were five for 110, which That's quite op- the wobble. opened the door. It did open the door for Victoria. I mean, if they run through the lower order, they might be chasing 300-odd on the final day and yeah. they might have a ball game on their hands. That was when Philippi was out to, to Holland. But uh, Whiteman, who I mentioned, made 84 in the first innings, made 123 in the second. He was player of the match. And there with Aaron Hardy, who, again, fast bowler, batting number seven, who made 174 not out, uh, 317 deliveries as they uh, sucked the life out of the game. They shook hands at lunch on the final day when Western Australia were were seven for 400, and that was that. But yes, Hardy's 23 years old, uh, his 10th first-class game, his second ton. He's more of a seamer than he is a batsman. So yes, Mitch Perry, Aaron Hardy, Will Sutherland. Hmm, interesting. West Australia win the Shield. Yeah, it sounds to me like they've got the the skeleton of a team that could win it and go back to back like they did those 23, 22, 23 years yeah, ago. Yeah, it's a good point. And yeah, and, and if it is Shaw Marsh's finale, what a great way to finish it, not just holding the trophy up as captain, but he's had, gee, three really strong years. I think he was the domestic player of the year two years ago and made a number of centuries. The criticism of Marsh in the first half of his career was that we talked about conversion problems. He, he never really made bulk centuries for WA. It's been the complete opposite since being omitted from the Australian test team in, in 18-19. He's been a, a ton machine both at 50 over and, and, and test level and, and won a couple of big bashes as well. And he broke the hearts of Englishmen in 2013-14 with an extraordinary he had an extraordinary series that year. Yeah, uh, 20, sorry, 2017-18. I beg your pardon. And rode his luck and scored tons of runs when yeah. he started that series. I remember in Australia there was, oh, you know, no, not not Sean Marsh again. Then proceeded to reel off. Well, that hundred at Adelaide all day. Yeah, yeah. that that hundred at Adelaide that really that in very challenging conditions with a was a defining hundred of in, an innings of his career. One question for you before we move on mm. from the Sheffield Shield, and this is a, a question from an Englishman to an Australian. Yes. Well, I've always kept an eye out for the Sheffield Shield. It's a wonderfully constructed tournament. I like the number of games, number of teams, the quality of the players. But as our county championship begins in two days' time, and I saw the the pictures of the winning moment and Sean Marsh with a trophy aloft, and I, I just sort of I thought when a side wins the county championship in this country, there's always all the members turn up for that day. Yeah, there's like yeah. two thousand people. What what is it? Because while in England we're in constant conniptions about this tournament, every year there's you know we've got to restructure it, we've got to remove counties, or we've got to have three divisions, or we've got to play fewer games, or whatever. Still, the fan engagement is streets ahead, it seems, of where it is in Australia. What's the reason for that? Yeah, it's a good question. There are some similarities to the championship in that if you go back 50 or 60 years, the Shield was very, very well attended. Um, remember that the traditional Boxing Day test match was was a Sheffield Shield game between Victoria and New South Wales, and they'd get big numbers to the G for that. 
And so it was through the 80s when Queensland were on that mission to win their first shield. It took them another decade, but you look back at the television footage of those finals and they were well attended too. I think that it's a story about how easy it's been to engage with the shield online. And that's a great thing. They get extraordinary numbers of people watching the streams and much as what we see in the, uh, in the championship, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. They've had that service for quite a long time now before the championship really got ahead of that. The championship do a good job now, but the shield have got, you know, all the games on um, what's that is KO, a streaming service. They're all streamed properly, leaps and bounds ahead with commentary and, and that kind of thing. And by that, I mean, they often will have a game on the proper sort of Fox cricket channel with Fox's commentators yeah. and, and so it goes. So I think that, that that's partly it. It's very easy to access that way. And yeah, uh, Shield finals that I've been to, one that stands out was 0304 when Victoria won for the first time in, in a dozen years. That felt like there were a lot of people at the G then. Maybe there were 15,000, 20,000 people there. Or maybe that's oh, just right. the recollection of a university student who'd, who'd enjoyed <laughs> too many beers in the outer, <laughs> lapping up a Victoria's success. Hard to know for sure. But yeah, it, I, I think that it would be wrong to assume that because people aren't there that it isn't considered to be a special thing. But at the same time, when WA won the one-day cup a few weeks ago at the Junction Oval in Melbourne... There were like, I think someone counted, there were like 20 people there when the trophy was being handed out because it was part of the neutral venue because they had to be in Victoria because of COVID. So, yeah, I think it might be partly a COVID story. Even thinking about when WA won the Shield in 97, 98, there were a lot of people at the Wacker. So it might just be a a sign of the times or or something like that. But a competition that is in root health, even if it was uh, truncated this year and they did play fewer games, they only played seven games this year, Victoria and WA. And we would never want it to get to, to that stage. But hopefully it'll be back to uh, situation normal in 22-23. Uh, let's uh, dart across from Perth, across the Indian Ocean to Durban, to where South Africa played Bangladesh in the first of two test matches. Uh, Norky, this looked for all money like it was going to be a classic for about three and a half days. And then Bangladesh were bowled out for 51 in 114 deliveries. And uh, South Africa go one up in, with a team that includes some some names from yesteryear a little bit, thanks oh. to the, the change in, in Colpac regulations, thanks to the uh, the Brexit vote, but also missing a whole bunch of players who otherwise would be there if not for the IPL. Simon Harmer, the man who got away from English cricket. English English cricket's been very good at stealing players that it has no right to have, but staring them in the face for the last five or six years has been Simon Harmer, who is not single-handedly by any means part of a very good Essex team, but... He has been the missing piece in really any English County Championship team's armoury, which is a really effective spinner. And he has taken wickets, they say for fun. I don't know bowlers who don't enjoy taking wickets. (laughs) But he has taken mountains of them and he was on the verge of being qualified to play for England. And I would have been really interested if England had made overtures to him and selected him instead. He was brought back into the South African side and we witnessed something truly extraordinary. I think Andrew Sampson tweeted the exact stat on this. Is it the first time two South African spinners have taken seven wickets in a match since 1949? (laughs) And in that second innings, with Bangladesh chasing a a, a chaseable total, frankly. Yeah, they were after um, about... 300. I wrote it down here somewhere. It wasn't... 274. 274. 274 in seven hours. There was the time to do it because they bowled well in the second innings. 
despite the fact they had two guys in their team, by the way, both of whom have played a significant amount of test cricket, but average over 56 with the ball. Mm, mm. Eberdot being one of the yes. more fascinating guys. In, I mean, that, that's a whole podcast to yes. do on Eberdot's career. Eberdot Hussain. And then bundled out for, what was it, 53? 53, 53 was it, yeah. To lose by 220 runs. Harmer picked up four in the first innings. The four, four first wickets to fall. Then three in the second. Maharaj, seven for 32. For a start, a turning track. South Africa having spinners. I mean, you know, this is this is madness. If you, if you take Maharaj and Harmer now to Sri Lanka or or even India... Yeah, that's that's an interesting bowling lineup. Oh so. no, it sure is. I, I I thought it was interesting hearing from Mumanul Haq, who's the captain of Bangladesh, after the loss, saying it's inexcusable for Bangladesh to be bowled out by South African spinners in South Africa. And I'm like, yeah, actually, that's right. That 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 should not be happening. Just to recap on on the Harmer story briefly, he didn't play Test cricket between 2015 and this week. Between times, he took 300 wickets for Essex at like 19. So just to add. There might be people listening wondering why he didn't play for England. It's important to note that he never had a route to play for England. In order to be qualified for a different country, in England's case anyway, you need to have an English passport and then do your qualification period, which is now three years thanks to the Joffre mm-hmm. Archer situation. It was seven, then it became three to become brought into line with other countries and what most of the ICC uh, full member nations have. But the key thing here was that Harmer would have needed to have served probably, I think it was half a dozen years of residency to get his passport and then three more years on top of that. So it was never going to happen. In the same way, it was never going to happen for uh, Dwayne Olafier, who he no. arrived in England and said, I want to play for England. And nobody told him, mate, your granny is an English buddy. You're not getting a passport. <laughs> different Nor- for players. Normally there's a way. You know? Yeah, different <laughs> for players like Stevie Eskenazi, for example, yeah. from Middlesex, or I'm just thinking of him because I'm covering regularly, or Sam Robson, who did have an English passport, so there was no dramas yeah. there, or um, uh, who are some others? Uh, Ryan Sidebottom at Warwickshire, Mark Cosgrove when he was playing at Leicestershire. They all feasibly could have played for England at different points, but but not Harmer, not Olafir. So Harmer getting the opportunity to go home is a great story, mm. as it is for Olafir, as it might be for Kyle Abbott. Because, it, you know, I, I understand there are complications around Colpac contracts and the incentive structure there and the desire to make as much money out of being a professional cricketer as you can. But now that they can balance it off and be overseas players in the championship, as Harmer will continue being for Essex this year, whilst playing test cricket, that's the way it should be. Absolutely, and it's great to see the Brexit dividend is working for South African cricket. <laughs> yes, the, 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 one, the one constituency grouping that this is working out for uh, is for South Africans who made the move before 2020 or, or whatever it was. So, And just one other point, statistically, on that all-out 53, oh, yes. and I fucking loved this. 114 deliveries, right? That made it the equal 11th shortest completed innings in Test history. Okay, that's you know that's a thing, but it's not that big a thing. It's a, it's kind of a thing. It's tweet worthy, but it's not article worthy. It's it's the the fourth dot point when listing all the you know statistical atrocities that that happen when you're all out for that number, including yep. the fact that it's Bangladesh's second lowest score in Test cricket. How about this though? They are the third team to be all out in 114 deliveries. The previous time it happened was in 1899 at Cape Town at Newlands 
when South Africa were bowled out by England for 35. The time before that was exactly 10 years, almost to the day before in 1889, when they were bowled out for 43. So on the 1st of April, 1899, and the 25th of March, 1889, both times at Newlands, and both times England bowling out South Africa, both happening in 114 deliveries, never happened since, after the almost exactly a decade, within five days of it being a decade even, and then it happens yesterday in South Africa. Aren't numbers beautiful? And I think somebody got in touch with you to, to say what they liked even more. Oh, yeah. There was, was there, that in 1889, there were four ball overs. Yes. In 1899, there were five ball overs. And in 2022, there are six ball overs. So four, five, six, 114, 114, 114, always in South Africa. And yeah, I mean, England doing it twice, 10 years apart reminds me of... Um, when a, I first read it, by the way, I, I misread it. I thought, fuck, it's happened within six days of each other. I yeah. read 1889 as 1899 twice. I was about to go... Yeah, what? What? <laughs> But even I, I like it almost yeah. more that it was that it, that it had that that span of time that it was five days short of an even decade. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's beautiful. They go to Port Elizabeth next uh, to St George's Park for the second Test match of that series. Daniel, let's go back to Melbourne now briefly, just to reflect on the Shane Warne Memorial Service, the State Memorial Service that was held last week. I know that you're watching it as well uh, on television. A, a remarkable event that. No one will forget, I don't think, you know, whatever it was, 60,000 people at the MCG, live, uninterrupted coverage everywhere, including here uh, in the UK. Um, they said a billion people watched it. I'm sure that couldn't have been possible, but let's ignore the, the mathematics around that. I saw an op-ed in the paper trying to, um, trying to unpick why a billion people couldn't have watched it. Like, honestly, who cares? But a lot <laughs> yeah. of people watched it, right? A combination of celebrity, of music, of mates, of teammates... I mean, gags about his phone, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of inside jokes around God knows what was on that. Well, I guess the point I'm trying to make is it could not have done a better job no. of kind of capturing Shane Warne in all of his, in all of his celebrity and all of his public interest. It, it was remarkable, wasn't it? Because a lot of times, you know, memorial services often take quite a while to put together. And, you know, if you're going to do somebody really, somebody that huge justice, uh, a lot of thought needs to go into it. Now, I, I dare say a lot of thought did go into this, but the naturalness with which everybody felt able to talk about Shane Warne, I suppose is testament to the man himself, actually, that you didn't really pussyfoot around your feelings about Shane Warne. It was, there was a, an incredible, refreshing honesty to what everybody said. There was obviously, there was huge amounts of, you know, of emotion. You felt unbelievably moved by the side of his children, yeah, his father. But I guess because of the, the person that he was, there was no side. And people didn't feel, therefore, that they needed to pussyfoot around how they were going to describe Shane Warne and what Shane Warne meant to them. And I think... You know, bearing in mind the amount of shock that people were in initially when you were out in Pakistan, you'll have mm. experienced this. And, and I say this from the perspective of an Englishman looking on, you know, what that service told us, what that what service, I mean, what that, that event showed us was that Shane Warne was every bit as important as everybody in England thought he was to Australians, and then some. You know, I mean, it, it's inconceivable... I can't think of an English cricketer who could have that happen to them now, partly because, you know, they weren't, well, we don't have a, a genuine, true 
great of the game perhaps but more, more because of what he meant to Australian culture you know what he represented as an Australian and all of that was to the fore in this it was it was a really quite surreal thing to watch from here and unbelievably moving but also just you smiled so often watching it it's just oh yeah you know and it's, everything was really relatable there was no kind of maudlin you know when we do state occasions here the death march gets played and there's a black coffin and everybody's unbelievably somber this was not that and quite right too it's it's in, in the time worn phrase which is usually misused it is what he would have wanted yeah you've well you've you've done a better job of summing that up that I ever could actually um, I think maybe that's because you are an outsider in, and whereas I'm a Melbourneian and always will be I'm a Londoner but I'm a Melbourneian and Jeff and I spent an hour and a half talking about this a couple of weeks ago so I, I don't propose to, to rehash all of it but how could you not be affected watching his children speak you know when, when you have that sort of that rawness of what they're experiencing the recency you the know. recency of that uh, and not to be, you know, again, ignoring how many people may or may not have been watching on television, but either way, a shitload of people watching them, all eyes on them, every word being considered by the audience. Then there's the balancing that out with sheer celebration of the cricket side of things, you know, the fact that it was scattered with montages of wickets and stories of, 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 of days in his career, stuff that you didn't necessarily know unless you knew him really well. Like there were kind of anecdotes about him as a player and how generous he was as a friend to a lot of people. And if you were clear, what, what came through really strongly was that if you were a member of that worn inner circle, that inner sanctum, and it felt like it was a pretty big inner sanctum, Ooh, so yeah. like you had a lot of love to give. I mean, look at the mural. Look at the mural. I mean, the, you know, most of the people in the mural who are alive managed to uh, you know, end up on stage at different points, and that was pretty cool, I thought, or in the audience. And that final defining moment of them pulling the the, 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 the the drape down on the Shane Warne stand, you know, I've always been really proud of the Great Southern Stand as a a place where people gathered. I mean, I've stood, it, you know, not to make it about me at all, but like that grandstand means so much to me. It's where almost all my formative cricketing and football, for that matter, experiences take place in there from 1991 onwards. And to see that stand now be the Shane Warne stand, it feels so right. I think I said at the time, the only crazy thing is that we didn't do it when he retired from Test cricket. should have been done then. But it's very appropriate to be the lasting tribute to him there. The people stand at the people's ground and to be recognised in the name of the people's champion uh, that was Shane Warne. Daniel, before we uh, take a break and move to our interview this week with Matt Critchley, we're going to take time out for a little bit of nerd pledge just one number of nerd pledge as is the custom on the weekly show i'm mindful we've already been talking for 70 minutes they're always a long show when you're on daniel (laughs) and that's a great thing so as people would know and if they're first time listeners they may not we have a patron page patron.com forward slash the final word that's where people have joined us over the last couple of years the last few years now to send through sums of money that relate to a cricketing number which we then tell a story about and that helps fund the show and allow us to do what we do with the final word day in day out and we are eternally grateful for it the number that we're going to consider today daniel is 244 in aud so $2.44 2.44 and it is from mike dunn it doesn't have a clue that's the way i like it i don't i don't have a problem when a clue sent through of course i'm grateful for a steer but when we get a, a 
a blank slate to start with. It's beautiful. It lets us take it any which way we please. Mm. And I assure you, later in story time today, that when we record for, for Saturday, we're, we're going to go on a fair, oh. fair few tangents. Oh, yes. But for 2.44, well, you and I were at the MCG. We were just talking about the G in relation to Warney when Alistair Cook made his 244 Christ, it's over four years ago now, Daniel. A lot's happened in our lives since then. You weren't covering that test match. And I just thought, before we get into it too deeply, I remember you having quite the week from Christmas Day all the way through. Oh, you are yes. working with me. We were doing videos at Stumps each night. But let's call it for what it is. You'd had a skinful each day because you didn't have to compensate. That's right. I was doing four of the five test matches. And the one I was missing was, was the Melbourne test. And, uh, yeah, Christmas was an extraordinary day, Christmas Day. Uh, you were very, very generous in um, hosting us in the evening. My wife got food poisoning from eating oysters when I suggested that she shouldn't because we thought she was allergic to them. Colo, I'm on the way. I'm on the way. Catherine is out of the car and she's throwing up. I, I, I'll, I'll be there when I'm there. Yeah, that was. I was quite haunted by that and she's never let me forget it. I had to basically... Put her into bed. I'm still going to make it. I'm still going to be there. Don't worry. Are you okay, darling? Are you are you sure? Right, I'm off. <laughs> like a rat up a drain pipe uh, into a into a beautiful big pool, as I into remember. Into a hot tub. Yes. Into a hot tub. Yeah. <laughs> that was that was Those that was excessive fun. Uh, yeah, and we were staying in a brilliant Airbnb, as I recall, and and I popped in every day. I'd pop in around about sort of two thirty, three o'clock, witnessing. I've got to say that was the worst pitch that cricket's been played on for... And that's saying some because we've had some pretty poor ones lately. Oh, that's as bad as I've seen. That, yeah. that, was, that was absolutely horrendous. Uh, but Alistair Cook batting for absolutely ever to get that 2.44. And I, I tell you, I fell in love with Melbourne over the course of that test match because, as you say, because I wasn't commentating on it, I felt able to enjoy the nightlife that that great, great city has to offer. I have a great recollection of that week. I don't know which... Of the three, my recollection is quite hazy. But you, you, I, I've got one. I don't think you were. In fact, I'm sure you went there. I'm sure you went there. It was a night. It might have been when Cook was a hundred and something, or when he was two hundred and something. One or the other. All those days mould into one. Where we went out after play, as as one does, and enjoyed Melbourne's nightlife. And I got wind of the fact that uh, a couple of mates from Melbourne of mine play in an Oasis cover band called Shaker Faker, uh, and they were playing a gig at Ding Dong Lounge. Rest in peace. One of my all-time favourite venues. In fact, Rory Dollard, who was on The Final Word a couple of months ago, in an extraordinary series of events, played the last ever song at Ding Dong Lounge before it shut, but that's a whole different time. Wow. And we were doing our thing, and I told Felix, massive, Felix White, massive Oasis fan, as documented beautifully in his uh, book, It's Always Summer Somewhere, I think I got that right, and we interviewed him about that last year. And I said, Fee, come with, you're going to love this, Oasis cover band, it's going to be a laugh. And I think he lasted about two songs and had to leave. He just couldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't be having... Did it offend him, did it? Uh, uh, in, in the kindest possible way, I think it did. So he was on his way uh, because of that and so it goes. And that, I don't think that's a reflection on Shaker Faker, more just, uh, I suppose, the purity of his fandom of Oasis. It's got extraordinarily high standards. Yes, Felix. he does, he yeah. does. It was a great week. But I'm not going to talk about that 244, nor am I going to talk about the 244 up the road here at the Oval in 1934, which was the Bradman epic with Ponsford when they put on 451. That, that's a story that we've told a number of times, so I won't tell that again. Instead, instead, Daniel, I want to talk about another 244 that was made at the Oval 
in 2004, and I suspect you might have been there, it was when Jamie Dalrymple made 244 for Middlesex against Surrey. And I thought, given we're starting the championship season this week, what better <laughs> You're time, <troubling> me. <laughs> what better time to talk about when Surrey had 244 taken from them. But all the more relevant, see, I kind of flirted with this. I'll, I'll tell the story of Jamie Dalrymple. And then I saw that on the scorecard, this also happens to be the match where Tim Murta playing for Surrey, yeah. Middlesex captain, legend, 41 years of age or whatever he is now, made his highest score in first-class cricket of 74 not out. I can't tell you how many times, Daniel, commentating Tim in the last couple of years, we've reflected on his highest score being 74 not out. I had no idea when it was or how it happened. Well, it happened uh, on this day in May 2004 at the Oval. He's one of the most underrated batters in world cricket. You know, I think he's the only number 11 to get double figures twice in the same test match, isn't he? He's, Which he did he, in the first test he played against He's the Pakistan. only number 11 to have made a half-century on test debut and the only number 11 it might be to have top-scored in both innings of a test match. Was that what it was? Something it's, like that. It's something insane like that, yeah. isn't it? No, it yeah. wasn't his test yeah. debut, rather, because that was at Malahide. It must be to do with the fact that it was the most number of runs or the highest percent. Whatever it is, he's got he's got a batting factoid somewhere there from that 50 he made against Afghanistan in India back in 2019, it must have been. So it starts with the, the with the Murta 74 not out. It's probably a year to the day since we interviewed Tim on the final word, actually, ahead of the 2021 season. And as I say, he's the captain this year, the full-time captain at Middlesex. They'll be starting their campaign against Derbyshire in a couple of days. I'll be there at Lords covering that. Now, let's cut to the car chase here. The Middlesex reply to 359. Ed Joyce makes 100 early doors. He sent me a message last week to wish me well. Cheers, Ed. Looking forward to catching up with him uh, through the summer. He's Ireland's women's coach these days, Ed Joyce, former champion of the Irish team and Middlesex and England and, and all the rest of it. But yes, he and Jamie Dalrymple took them from four for 62 to five for 360. So a 292 run stand. Uh, Dalrymple uh, made his 244, taking on Lance Klusner and Tim Murta. In fact, it was Tim Murta who eventually got him out and to bring it back full circle. Uh, Surrey batted out. It's a boring draw. They make uh, 300 for four the second time around. Another 50 for ramps. Ali Brown, the man who has spoken of in hushed tones around the Oval sometimes of what could have been an unbeaten 64. Were you there the day when he made his 268? No, I wasn't there on the day, but uh, I I know so many people who were. It was a tiny boundary on one side, on the the side where the Cricketers pub, which was still operational in those days, was. And uh, it took quite a long time because the ball kept going out of the ground. Just to clarify, that's the highest ever list day score. Highest ever list day I score. I think Michael Kaspervitz was in the attack for Glamorgan that day, so it wasn't a bad effort. There's a, to... there's a bar named after Ali Brown. Uh, yes, that, there is. It's the, main, it's the main bar in the pavilion, really, <laughs> as it should be. So I, I just thought, I, yeah, we'd quickly run through the Dalrymple story, though, So because he is an interesting character. So the double hundred was part of this run he was on that got him into the uh, England one-day team. Uh, by 2006, he played 27 one-day internationals, a high score of 67, so he never really scaled the heights when wearing uh, national colours, took 14 wickets as well with his off-breaks. But what he's remembered for in Australia, um, Dan, is this catch he took at backward point. We all remember the Paul Collingwood catch uh, off Mike Hussey or Matthew Hayden, one or the other, um, in that one day at Bristol in 2005. Well, the next year, the catch that Dalrymple takes off Watto is every bit as good. The Superman effort, diving away to his left, an absolute gem. It was that game at the SCG where Liam Plunkett went nuts at the start, knocked over the top order, England win, and I think 
that meant they won the Tri-Series or something like that on the way to the 2007 World Cup. And That's there right. was a bit of chat, oh, maybe Australia won't be quite as competitive as we think at the World Cup. And they went through undefeated and England didn't make it through the elimination stage. No, it was one, it was one of those many false dawns. But it was, a, it was an extraordinary one-day series because England had been trounced, as you say, in the Ashes series. And no one was expecting them to do anything with a with a classic English white ball setup. In, in other words, an entirely different team. Yes, <laughs> out of nowhere, seemed to win that game. Uh, yes, yes, that, that's that, right. That and, and anyway, the World Cup went dreadfully for them. Uh, and, and as it happens, that catch was off Paul Collingwood too. So he was the catcher in two thousand and five and the bowler uh, in two thousand and six. And yeah, Dalrymple didn't really enjoy the sort of career you might expect after that start. You know, he. He kind of came through the university system, then a young gun playing for England, that aforementioned 244. But, yeah, within a couple of years, he's out of England calculations. And not long after that, he finishes up at Middlesex, tries his hand elsewhere, ends up back at Middlesex in 2011 and, and retires at age 30. So the story uh, doesn't quite live up to the expectations that you might have from a young gun, but he'll always have that big double ton at the Oval in a Champo game some 17, 18 years ago, Daniel. Yeah, and, and you know, there's a, he's got an interesting backstory, Jamie Dalrymple. He went to Radley College, which is a very, very prestigious public school here. Went to Oxford. His dad was a film producer who was first to introduce Dirk Bogard to our screens back in 1948, I think it was, among many other things. He's got an incredible, um, he's got an incredible filmography. He he produced and directed The Wooden Horse back in 1950, which was a, a film that was forever on our TV screens on a, <laughs> on a Saturday morning. He's produced, co-written, been executive producer on about 50 films. He ended up marrying, Jamie Dalrymple himself, ended up marrying a woman called Sophie Stackler, who has got a lot of money. And I think, okay. that, I think that cricket became less of an attractive prospect. That might have been why at age 30 is like, I'm not going to play for England again. Maybe sack this off. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like the Zafar Ansari sacking no. him off because he wants to become Secretary General of the United Nations. <laughs> and, and he will do one day, believe you me. Let's hope so. <laughs> but no, he, I think he went off for more lucrative pastures. It, I'm not sure if you were listening to Storytime the other week. We were talking about C.B. Fry in some depth. And, and one of the myriad revelations was that he was the special advisor to Ranjasinghe when he was the Indian delegate to the original League of Nations meeting. Yeah. So he took, so took C.B. Yeah. Fry with him, which is when he was offered the, the throne of Albania. So some people, life takes fascinating twists and turns. Uh, Mike Dunn, that's probably not why you sent through 244, but the beauty of Nerd Pledge is that you can tell us or you can give us a steer as to what it might be about and we'll tell the story on Storytime at a later date. Patreon.com forward slash the final word if you would like to contribute to doing what we do on the show. We love you all and the Discord channel uh, has been as ever, brilliant. Again, I, I mentioned this at the start of the show, but a, a lot of love from uh, people on there after my accident a couple of weeks ago, and, and that was most appreciated. And I'm looking forward to picking up the conversation there as we begin the championship season in a couple of days. And that might be the right place for us to take a breather on the final word. And when we return, we'll be talking to Matt Critchley. Daniel, you and I share many things in common, uh, as most people 
probably would know, having listened to us carry on for the last hour and a half or whatever it is. Uh, one of them is that we share an affinity for Woodstock cricket bats and the whole Woodstock range, really. It's not just bats. They do everything, including gelées, I noticed this week, and, and baseball caps uh, and, and other bits and bobs. But mainly, they're in the business of making cricket bats, award-winning cricket bats. They went one-two in the good gear guide last year. And now cricket bats, you can see on the test field, Joshua De Silva, we mentioned it last week, but made a splendid maiden test ton with a woodstock of his own. And, and a beautiful test ton it was too. That ball pinged off that bat, didn't it? Ooh, yeah. um, I, I love a woodstock bat. They're handcrafted, they're lovingly cared for. And uh, it, it's not just Joshua De Silva. There are some, there are some more and more names in the, uh, you'd see in the English County Championship, for yep. example, people using them. Stephen Finn, a man I do a podcast with, we've said him, because he's got a Woodstock bat, we've said, look, you know, you've got a decent stick now. We don't want to see you poking and scratching around. <laughs> no more Watford Wall. No more Watford Wall. We've, we've set him a target of 25 boundaries in the first, <laughs> first class boundaries this season because he's got a proper... Is he going to play? Yeah. You going to play this week, do you think? We think he, we think he is, yeah. Well, he In fact, I don't think is. Sussex play this week, do they? I think they've got the week. No, no, they've got, they've got Nottinghamshire. Oh, they do. Sorry, right they've got Nottinghamshire. Yep. And on Friday, this would be one to just keep an eye on, if you're listening to this before Friday, snow is forecast for Hove and oh, for God. the south of England. Oh, so, dear old Finney, now advanced years, 33 years old, turning out for his new county for the first time. Is he going to be coming in and a kind of little a little flurry of blizzard well that's not going to be the issue the issue is going to be can he get to bat can he get to bat out there with his woodstock bat and send one crashing into the sea at home maybe they need to start making woodstock thermals rach isn't too keen on me being out in the freezing cold at the moment with various no, parts of my body not feeling wise. very good so yeah, i've bought some thermals this week and i'm going to layer up to probably commentate uh, with an open window there at lords as we have the last couple of seasons there in the in the tavern stand i hope we're in the media center but if we're not mm. uh, we'll be in the tavern stand and um and yeah maybe thermals can be added to the range what i'll tell you about woodstock uh, daniel is that if you put in the offer code TFW20 at woodstockcricket.co.uk, it probably um, you've worked out already. That means 20% yeah. off. With that discount, we did some, we crunched some numbers recently. To buy a brand new stick in Australia, and let's use Australia as the example for the time mm-hmm. being, you got, you're being set back the better part of a grand now, which is crazy, but let's not offer a value judgment on that. 900 to 1,000 bucks for the types of bats you see on telly and you want to buy. If you apply the offer code and buy the top line Woodstock bat and you do the currency conversion, you're still ahead by three or four hundred bucks. Oh, well, that's a couple of seriously good meals, huh? Uh, well, yes, that, that is indeed. But you're getting a bat that's award winning and you're getting it shipped to you and you're getting the personal consultation, which they do on Zoom if you're in Australia or any other part of the world. I'm only using mm-hmm. Australia because of that price point I mentioned before. So why wouldn't you do it? This tends to be the time of year you're thinking, gee, do I need a new stick for next year? April, you know, pre-season's a couple of months away. This is the perfect time. And by contrast, if you're in the UK, the offer code of TFW20 will only help the situation because the shipping will be fuck all because it's only going to be in the country. Too right. And and if you're wondering what is it that's so great about a Woodstock bat, yes, there's the consultation. Yes, there's the fact that you know that these are high-quality bats. Joshua De Silva's not using it unless it is. But that... Almost unique factor for me is that I picked one up. I, I said, right, I think I need a lighter bat. My bat's too heavy. And he said, are you sure you need a lighter bat? I said, yeah, I feel this. He says, well, yeah, that feels heavy. How does this feel? 
And I picked it up and said, yeah, that's much better. He said, it's exactly the same weight. <laughs> that's what, that, that, there is a... It's a heavy bat, but it's a light yeah, bat. Yeah, w- without sort of indulging too much in this, there is a sort of a, there is sort of an arch to bats, isn't there, with respect mm. to the pickup and all the Pick rest up. of it. And it's John Newsom, isn't it, the, the bat maker there who does all of the work, all by hand. My daughter Winifred has a Woodstock bat. It's, a, be- it's a beautiful thing. Oh. We got it for her second birthday. She loves playing around with it at the moment. In fact, quick Winnie anecdote. I know we're, we're rambling on today, but hey, it's our podcast. We'll do what we want. This morning, she was kicking the soccer ball around, um, the football, I should say, in your terms, uh, a ball that Vish and I stole last year when we were in Regent's Park. I think it was Regent's Park, somewhere or another. We were walking around and saw an, an errant ball, and we just picked yeah, it up yeah, and gave well, it to yeah. Winnie. Little kid-sized ball. And every time she kicks the ball, she goes, How's that? Oh. So she is so hardwired to cricket that she thinks that any time something happens with a ball that your natural response is to go, how's that? Oh, good girl. Oh, She's got is, no chance, has she? No. This is going to be a real tussle of nationality when it comes to, when it, comes to it. Yeah, well, she given she's going to grow up here and she already speaks with that English accent. Yeah, she's one of ours. I think that it's going to be hard to mount the case, put it that way. Mm. But yes. She'll have a Woodstock bat as she grows up, and you can too. Woodstockcricket.co.uk. TFW20 is the code. There's never been a better time to get yourself a new bit of kit. Hi, I'm Natalie Jemanis, and you listen to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. It is The Final Word with Adam Collins and Daniel Norcross. And as promised, our interview today, our feature interview on the cusp of a new county season starting is with a man who's starting uh, the second stage of his career, Matt Critchley, now of the Essex County Cricket Club, formerly of Derbyshire. New club, new season. You must be very excited. Yeah, definitely. I can't wait to get going. Thank you for having me on here and stuff. Um, But yeah, I can't wait to get going. Excited cricket. With all the media days going on, fielding in the snow, batting in the snow, feels like it's about to start again, which is exciting. Sometimes it's not as exciting when you get out there and you're shivering, but yeah, can't wait to get going. So the reason we wanted to get you on is because we kind of think you might be one of these guys who might just emerge from the pack. You've had a great season in 2021, a pretty useful season in 2020 as well. You've made the move to Division 1, which is no no small thing, but you've got a good backstory as well. Let's go back to there. So a kid of Lancashire persuasion originally, weren't quite getting the opportunities that you thought you might chance your hand at Derbyshire and it immediately goes well, uh, becoming the youngest ever centurion uh, for that club back in 2015. So, I mean, a, a big decision not to stick with your home county and, and it pays off immediately. Yeah, definitely. I think played for Lancashire since I was 10 years old. All the age groups played with well, half the, most of the teams playing county cricket at the moment in the Parkinson's, Masiki, Perceive, Harry did and he used to play as Jeb Bahanen, like they were all the year below, but all played my side. And then, yeah, I got to played every year, got to about 16, 17, I think. And they had Matt Parkinson in the academy, Rob Jones come across from Cheshire, who both got to have good careers. And yeah, fortunately for me, don't quite know fully how it worked with Derbyshire asking or Lancashire kind of saying we've got it, or probably a bit of both. but did well against Derbyshire, wasn't in the academy at Lancashire and then yeah, fortunately worked out for there and all happened pretty quickly. I remember played one second team game at Derbyshire when I was 17, got far through my first game and then went off to New Zealand for six months and came back and 
I played the second Champo game of the year, which I probably wasn't really expecting. So it all happened pretty quickly and probably luckily everything's fallen into place, but probably also from looking for the opportunities out there as well. Now tell me, when you were growing up, your dad was a level three coach, wasn't he? So Yeah, he still coaches. Um, I think he's just finished coaching the pathways at Lancashire. But yeah, he's done quite a bit. So, so was this? I mean, were you just steeped in cricket from the from the very beginning? Were you were you out there sort of being coached the perfect technique? How does a level three coach nurture a son? Does he just let him fight, just let him get on get on with it, or was he always there going, no, no, high elbow, get that arm high? <laughs> Probably a bit of both, really. Probably my dad's coaching went hand in hand with me getting better. Like he probably did the levels as I was getting going through the age groups rather than being a full coach before I was I'd started. But yeah, a lot of cold days in the nets um, at the cricket clubs I played at growing up, him throwing balls and telling me what to do, me arguing, him driving off, leaving me in the nets and then coming back, picking me up a minute later when I thought I was getting left there and then mum telling him off. Um, yeah, probably a lot of arguments about why did you play that shot? Why did you do that? But no, nah, I wouldn't be where I am without mum and dad. So yeah, a lot of hours, a lot of selfless hours, a lot of watching cricket. Probably firstly, I wanted to be a footballer like every kid in England and then was never going to be good enough, although I scored the winner in training today. So little one <laughs> smash and grab. So, um, but no, nah, yeah, it came from there and then like bold, tried everything when I was younger, did a summer camp with Alvaro Peterson, the former South Africa opening batter and he saw me ball leg spin said I think you should stick with that and then from there and then spent hours with dad, st- with dad doing that With the leggies you're kind of living the Australian dream in a way being a top order player who bowls very effective leg spin I mean last year at Derbyshire you, you were doing everything seemingly at different points through the season but Stuart McGill's part of this story as well the ECB saw fit to send you to Australia for a couple of seasons to work on your cricket but talk us through your relationship with Stuart McGill and how important that's been to your development yeah, massively. So when first year I'd have been nineteen or twenty, went over to Sydney, played at Randwick Petersham on a placement and worked with Stewie and Mason Crane for six months. Went back and did the same thing a year later, but played at Fairfield Liverpool and Matt Parkinson and Delray Rawlins, I think, was there as well at that point. So they were two full summers with the ECB that he had a massive impact. I can still speak to him now. He's amazing to speak to about like spin bowling, but more importantly, he's an amazing person to be around. Like when you're with him, you don't want to leave. You want to stay the whole night. You want to keep going. Like a few <laughs> stories that are knocking out there and stuff. But no, he's amazing to be around. And then also to bowl with Mason and Matt, who have obviously gone on to both play for England. I'm sure will play a lot more in the future. Hopefully, like to train with them day in day out and share each other's ideas. Like I think sometimes people think like you're going to be jealous with each other or you're going to do that. But it's always the case. You think that for about a minute and then you get to bowl with them and you end up being the best friend with each other because you share each other's pain. Happens with every spinner. You go to different clubs um, and stuff. And then, yeah, I went back a couple of years after that again to play for Fairfield and work with Stewie just on my own. Um, and so that's how big an impact he had. And I hope I can either get out there to see him or he comes over here. But yeah, he's amazing to speak to about spin bowling. And then obviously, like, yeah, I've now done a couple of sessions with Shane Warne, like, late great. Um, and they're two massive impacts, like, you watch growing up, being a bit of a badger, like, you look at YouTube all the time, you watch them bowl, you watch them bowl in tandem, you knock South Africa over. 
like watching that. I've watched that YouTube clip so many times, like, and yeah, to watch these guys and then, but to have a personal relationship with one of them is pretty amazing, really. Um, leg spin in this country. I mean, I'm fascinated by the people who take up leg spin, like including yourself, because England has not had a very good history of treating its leg spinners very well. I mean, you go all the way back to Titch Freeman back in the 20s, that he's got the second most number of first-class wickets ever, and he hardly got picked for England. They were very suspicious of leg spinners in England in the 50s, 60s. What was it that inspired you into leg spin? Was it like watching Shane Warne as a kid or, or similar? Yeah, definitely. I think we're all probably pretty weird. That's why we don't get picked as leg spinners. But different characters, <laughs> I reckon. Nah, only messing. Um, yeah, like well, I watched that. I've already started bowling a bit of leg spin. I'd have been like nine or ten. But watching that 05 Ashes and that whole series, that was the first series I remember watching. They let us watch it at school, at primary school, at breaks and stuff. I remember watching everyone like it was amazing. Like Peterson, Flint off from the England side is obviously a lot more. But I remember watching Shane Warne, obviously already had a bit of a vested interest and just the way he captivated an audience, how good he actually was. And I think like when you watched him, it's only later down the line, you actually appreciate how good he was. He had the accuracy of like a finger spinner, but all the skills of the best leg spinner that's ever bowled. So I think I'd have liked to have watched that series live with the knowledge that I had now. I'd probably have been even more in awe of what was going on. But yeah, that inspiration. And then I think I probably grew up in a bit more of the T20 era where like there's leg spinners are prevalent in every game, like almost the main bowler now in every single game is a leg spinner or a fast bowler. So I think uh, it was just kind of put in front of me and I went out looking for it. But yeah, I, I love it. Like I love the art of it. I probably enjoy my bowling more than my batting if I'm if like if I'm honest like um obviously I love doing both but yeah bowling's the actual like proper love and if I ever coached I'd want to coach like the bowling side of it that's the bit I enjoy enjoy the geek side of it it's interesting that you say that because you know watching your rise or, or charting your rise from so let's say 2018 onwards right so permanent fixture in the first team at Derbyshire you make that 100 at Lords. is it what, the youngest player in 100 years or whatever to make 100 at Lords for Derbyshire, match-winning innings in, in the blast and take 19 off Tim Bresnan to win a blast game. You know, there is this moment in time where you're getting the opportunity to play for the England Lions away from home, the North-South game and all, all that kind of thing. But it must be difficult as someone at that age who's got wraps on you to then go away and do it week in, week out and to develop a body of work and be a consistent contributor. I mean, the county grind isn't an easy thing. It's called the county grind for a reason. And you've been able to steadily improve without really having a dip. Is that why you felt so comfortable now to, I mean, I know it's a big thing moving counties, but you feel like you're ready for that next big step? Yeah, definitely. I think the one thing that has probably stood me in good stead and helped me throughout my career is like, I've got the potential to like win games and like have moments like, them that you mentioned there that like not no one else can do but like it seems to like happen for me quite a bit and stuff so I think getting older probably getting better as well learn how to do them more consistently and when they're not them moments in between them still getting your scores of your, your 60s your 70s still contributing all the time with both bat ball and in the field but yeah I think it is now like I've been interested to see how 2020 would have developed it was only four games but I think I had a pretty good four games and I think potentially could have had the season I had last year over the whole year one year earlier and then 
done that, but obviously that wasn't meant to be or whatever. But yeah, I think just I want to be more consistent in my cricket. I want to win more games and now's a good time to come to a side where there's probably less pressure on you to do it yourself as often as you're playing with Sir Alistair Cook, Brown, Tom Wesley, Dan Lawrence, all the bowling attack, Harmer, less focus on you, but that doesn't take away how much I want to contribute and hopefully then contributes lead to winning games, winning titles, which is one of the main reasons for my move along with playing that better standard of cricket. Well, it's, it's a great setup to be in Essex. I mean, they have been the standout side in the county championship for the last four or five years. I, I just want to take you back to when you first burst onto the scene, though, because I, I was down at Derby, I was commentating a game, so 2015, I think. And, you know, Dave Griffin, I'm sure you know, the uh, the yeah. photographer and sort of archivist yeah. at Derbyshire. Derbyshire. <laughs> and uh, I was chatting to him, I said, any, any good players coming through? He said, oh, we've got this great leg spinner, uh, Matt Critchley, you look out for him. And I, and I looked out for you, and the next thing I saw is you got 137 not out. I thought, is, 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 does Dave realise that he's a batter? I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, I don't think I guess anyone I, did at that point, to be honest. I didn't realise myself. <laughs> well, no, because you were batting down the order then. So I, I guess, yeah, my question is, when, when did you, or, or did you always see yourself as a batter who bowled, or were you in your brain a bowler who batted? Um, probably a bit of both, really. That's a question I've been asked quite a lot. And even in the Lancashire age groups, like one year I'd open the bat in, the next year I'd bat down the order and bowl, then I'd do a bit of both, and then it'd go recycling. I think the first year we played at Lancashire, me and Matt Parkinson opened the bat in, and Stephen Mead bowled Lakeman and batted at three. So it was a very different setup to our careers and what we've gone now. Um, but yeah, probably. Getting in most better sides now is probably a battery bowls in the four-day cricket. But I always saw myself as doing both. Like I was in league cricket growing up. I didn't play at school, so I played league cricket growing up. Always like batted in the top four, like scored my runs and took my wickets. Always played. I had quite um, a heavy role with both. So yeah, I, I see myself as like a genuine all-rounder contributing to both rather than my batting just developing. I think the people at Sutherland in Sydney spoke of similar about Steve Smith like he might have got selected as the leg spinner that might have been his way in but he was always the batter side of it his leg spin just probably was a bit more prevalent younger and I think that's probably the case for me leg spin got me my place in the team but batting's the one that keeps me in the team you're one of only a handful of people that got Steve Smith out in 2019 as well on that remarkable Ashes trip that, that he had. Uh, you, you got him out uh, when he was on his comeback, wasn't he, after the, the head knock at Lords and he played that game that we were at, that, that three-day game at, at Derby where you got his wicket. So not a bad effort there to, to start with. But jumping to, to last year, so an even 1,000 runs in the season. Uh, you got there on the final day of the campaign, which is not for nothing either. You know, 52 wickets across all formats. You were voted into the PCA Team of the Year. You came runner-up in kind of the league best and fairest, so to speak, as well. Counties fishing for your signature. It does put you in a sort of a, a privileged position, doesn't it, where you have a big breakout year at the perfect age and suddenly you're a man in demand. It, it, it sort of changes the dynamic from you trying to prove yourself to counties around the country saying, this guy could help us win his trophies. Yeah, definitely. And that got me probably a few more opportunities like I was disappointed to not go away with the Lions or anywhere uh, to Australia this winter if I'm honest after doing all that so I felt like I needed the move as well to try and push my case further forward um, but yeah it obviously is a nice position that the county's come out and got you like I wasn't in my last year 
at Derby. So like for Essex to come and sign me and do that is like amazing really. And hopefully I can repay that faith by helping them win trophies. But they've been on the same note, they've been amazing with that, taking the pressure off, reminding, like you said, they signed you for a reason. Like it's in what you do now. It's not on like a whim or what you could do, like but enough body of work behind myself to kind of prove that. And then I think that helps you to if you have a tough, tough couple of games like to keep going remember I, we played the two day game here Sam Cook bolt knocked my middle stump out and I faced two balls of hair and beard and got out both times about three <laughs> times in two days and you're kind of like long drive home going oh no and then you just kind of at least you have stuff to fall back on and then thankfully did alright in the second friend who played against Middlesex so that's a nice time out in the middle but yeah it is a probably more you'd rather be in that position than be fighting for a county after having a few tough seasons talk to me about the because you you do an art that is unbelievably tricky with leg spin uh but you touched on it just then that leg spinners are absolutely key you you watch any ipl game i mean you know adil rashid is not getting an ipl contract apparently because there are wrist spinners all over india so they're not picking one of the best wrist spinners in the world Mm. but it, it shows you how franchises and t20 sides really value wrist spin. Do you train differently for white ball, red ball, very, very specific? Because it's such a tricky skill to start with. Or you know, how, how do you kind of compartmentalise what you're trying to do? I personally, like, I don't know what others do, but I just bowl in training, like, like I'm bowling with a red ball every time. I bowl and then in white ball cricket, it's more just doing a bit, probably a bit more analysis about what shots people are going to play. Like, it's not, too much rocket science as a spinner, they either reverse sweep you and you have two points or they run down and try and hit you out of the ground, really. Um, so it's trying to work that bit out and that. But And then maybe when the white ball season comes, you can have the freedom to bowl more variations early in your spell because you only have 24 or 20 balls at it, depending on the two formats that uh, I'm playing at the moment. But yeah, I think my fundamentals, it's something I spoke to Stuart McGill about, is with a red ball and that's how where you get your base from trying to be able to be as consistent as possible spin it as far as possible and get your variations step to bowl 25 overs really so yeah that's how I train I remember talking to Phil Tufnell about this a number of years ago and it became true of Graham Swan in practice that spinners he's mostly talking about finger spinners but you could extrapolate it to, to wrist spinners as well don't feel completely comfortable in their skin so they've got a three in front of their age. And the point there is that it takes a long time because it is such a a tactile craft, if you like. Do you feel now that you're coming into the second half of your 20s and the fact that you'll get to bowl with Simon Harmer, who's been on a similar journey, back playing test cricket now, that it could really turbocharge your development as a wrist spinner? Yeah, definitely. I think trying to get the opportunity to bowl in match-winning situations is a thing that I've put a big emphasis on in the county that I wanted to go to or, or stay at. I wanted to bowl in the fourth innings when it's spinning. Your team's got 300, 350 on the board. Once I have the opportunity to do that more often than not. Um, but yeah, I think definitely like just the standard of like bowling to like Wesley, Lawrence, Cook, Brown mm. and the Nets. Like you miss, they hit for four. So you kind of naturally like the product of your environment. You want to get better. You don't want to do that. So yeah, hopefully it can kickstart going on. And it is true, spinners get better after 30. So if I could do that at 27, 28, three years earlier into that, um, which is obviously hopefully my aim. And I felt like every year I've got 
better with that and develop my skill set. So that I'm mad keen to keep going. And then the ceiling is so high with leg swim that if you can do it, you can do whatever you want, really. This might sound like a slightly strange question when you're just moving clubs and and it's Division One and it's a different mountain for you to climb and, and all the rest of it, but. England cricket's in a period of discombobulation at the moment. And part of the reason we're interested in you is that, you know, we reckon you might be that guy that could be playing for England in the future. But are you kind of emotionally and mentally equipped to deal with that kind of pressure if it happens a little bit quicker? If you have a great start to the season, and let's hope you do, that if they are, you know, looking around the country for for younger prospects as they proceed with this red ball reset, do you feel like you've got the presence as a cricketer to make that step up a little bit earlier than might what in theory would be the plan? Yeah, de- definitely. I'll definitely be ready for that. I think actually being coming here and changing environments is something that would help with that in the future. You know, like you feel a little bit when you move, there's eyes on you when they're not. Like everyone, yeah. you're not getting judged at all, but you kind of feel like it. So to actually go through that at this stage in my career, like probably stand me in good stead for that. And yeah, you never know till you get there with the pressures of it all. Obviously, the media hype comes a lot more, the pressure of actually playing comes a lot more you're playing against a lot better players so that's good but yeah I feel like I'm definitely ready if the call comes but I still got a lot of work to do when I play like I spoke to Stuart McGill again dropping his name um, about it like you don't really need to play too early you'd rather play when you're ready then you can go make that shirt your own make an impact and go that way that's a better way rather than playing too early, going into the wilderness and then it's kind of everyone already has an expectation of you or they've already formed their opinion on what you might have been like six years ago. Whereas if, say, I get picked now or I get picked at 28 or I never get picked, that first time they see you is still the first time they see you in an England shirt. Talk to me about the Lions because, you know, when England did rise up to number one back at the early part of the 2010s, Jeff Miller was in charge and he was very, very keen on making sure that players really came through a system, did county cricket, then played Lions cricket, so they were prepared for test cricket. Um, the Lions have taken a bit of a battery. COVID's not helped, has it? It's not really helped the, the setup. Mm. Is, is that now sort of like a pathway ambition for you? Get, get the Lions, get the Lions gig maybe, you know, this summer, maybe a, a winter tour, and then move steadily through the gears? Yeah, definitely. I think. Like, obviously, as I said, I was obviously everyone wanted to go on that tour to the Lions, but thought I was done enough to get on that tour and start being around that. But I think it was a bit of a different one, really. I only played a couple of games and it was probably a bit more of a training aid to the Ashes camp. But yeah, I think that is a natural progression to get around that setup, get used to probably guessing how they mimic how England does it, how a tour would be, and get used to that. But then at the same time, people have completely skipped that process and gone straight into the team and had success or been fine anyway. So, yeah, whichever way it happened, then that was to happen. But, yeah, if I got the opportunity, like that's definitely a goal, of, a personal goal to try and get in them set up and get your name around there. I'm going to go ask you a question. It's quite a hackneyed one, one that you've probably been asked many times. But county cricket, red ball cricket, at the moment, there's this massive downer on it from varying different angles, actually, and you know, because England's failure in the ashes and it causes this terrible introspection and keening and wailing. But the, the county cricketers I speak to still have great respect for the county championship and still have great ambitions, first and foremost, for test cricket. Is that, is that not necessarily talking about just you, but is that 
the vibe you get. Definitely. Like, I think everyone that plays, like, wants to play. Like, they want to do well. They want it to be the best standard possible. Like, there's obviously factors playing. Like, you guys are sitting up cricket, like, with pitches doing a bit or people potentially making results wickets or people at the end of the day probably just not being good enough to bat long periods of time like and bowlers getting better bowlers are now fitter like they don't bowl not saying they did back in the day not going down that route but like they don't bowl one two spells then they're tired and then you get like a few overs of like off a part-time spinner and like a few looseners a few overs like they're proper fit the boys now like they come back for three four spells they keep their ball long spells at you so there are factors like that but yeah there's definitely a burning ambition to make county cricket better as it is and then also in turn make the England side better and make the like standard of getting that England call up even better not just picking probably people because they think they could be a good player people knocking the door down with thousand runs year in year out three or four hundreds a year and then it will be then you see which bowlers as well are coming out on top not just kind of everyone because there'll probably be a list as long as you're on a bat seam as averaging under 20 but batsmen averaging 30 so if batsmen can get themselves averaging late 30s 40s there'll be less bowlers averaging under 20 and then that's who you can see who are your effective ones and it is way above my head how you do that but yeah there's definitely an ambition for everyone to improve their own game and improve the game as a whole Matt, I think what we should do is we should, through the course of the year, check in with you from time to time and see how you're going. We won't, we won't pest you every week, but maybe every month or so, <laughs> uh, and see how you're getting on at your new club and track your results, and we'll, we'll try and put an update in the podcast every couple of weeks about how you're faring, and we'll get all the Final Word community uh, on the Matt Critchley bandwagon. How's that sound? Oh, perfect. Look forward to it. Thanks for that. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for introducing yourself to us uh, and uh, good luck for the start of the season. Uh, can't wait to see how you get on. Perfect. Thank you. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. It's The Final Word, Adam Collins and Daniel Norcross. As we say goodbye after our conversation with... A lovely boy. We both said the same thing when we hit stop, oh. stop, stop on you. What a lovely boy. What a lovely boy. <laughs> smiley face. I mean, you can't see it from the podcast. It's a beautiful smiley face. He's filled with all the anticipatory joy of a new season coming up. And, you know, I'm very well aware, the final word is a podcast that's loved on, on both sides of the world. Yes. And as our Australian friends say goodbye to their season, seeing sort of Matt Critchley and seeing the English side of it, is that all that kind of, it's, it's a page yet to be written, isn't it? And, it's, it's nice. I mean, and, and yeah. the fact that after we hit stop on the tape, we're like, who have you got this week? He goes, Kent. Uh-oh, Steve-O. <laughs> Steve-O. Steve-O. Oh. Get your front pad out of the way, young man. Uh, so, uh, yeah, hopefully he uh, has a good time of it. Uh, I think they're at Chelmsford against Kent, so that will be round one for him. But, yeah, as we said on the tape, we'll, we'll keep tabs on him, which I think is a nice way for us to, to end the show. So, yeah, the start of a new season. Uh, the war is over when it comes oh, to the yeah. long, cold, dark, lonely winter. We'll be at Lords this week. Are you going to be – where are you this week? Which game are you doing? I'm not, I'm not going to be – I might pop into Lords this yep. week, but I'm, I'm doing a fair bit of IP. 
IPL coverage this week. Oh, and actually, I'll struggle because it's my wife's birthday oh. on Friday. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah, she Catherine doesn't like people to know. Catherine just popped a moment ago. She doesn't like people to know. Okay, we'll make a big fuss of her on so the way out. So I, I, might, I might have to be just watching your live stream. Okay. Although, uh, my first oval encounter is next week because it's my birthday. The start of the home season oh. at Surrey is my birthday. So We will celebrate accordingly, I Please sure. come down. Thank you, everybody, for listening, as always. Uh, thank you to our friends at Woodstock Cricket, woodstockcricket.co.uk. TFW20 is the code to get 20% off. Thank you to all of our patrons and everybody who gets involved there on the Discord page. Uh, you'll hear from Daniel and myself again on Storytime this week. We've got some cracking tales to tell oh, you. We have. And then Jeff will be back the following week. All right, that's enough from us. Thanks to everybody. Talk soon. Yeah. So you know what I meant here. I had to go about it.